You are listening to the Indefensive Plants podcast, a show designed to cure plant blindness around the globe. Support for Indefensive Plants comes from listener donations. If you would like to give your support to Indefensive Plants, please consider becoming a patron over at patreon.com slash indefensiveplants, and together we can help cure plant blindness one episode at a time. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Indefensive Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensiveplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How's everyone doing this week? You may remember my guest today from episode 186, where we talked about his journey into the world of being completely obsessed with Bonnie. Well, my good friend Joey Santor makes his triumphant return to the podcast, but this week we're talking about his obsession with the world of Asteraceae, the asters, the daisy family, the composites that challenge a lot of us that get into botany. But the challenge is great because it forces you to take a closer look at a family of plants that a lot of people just write off as being so similar that they don't really matter. Well, as you're going to hear, that's definitely not the case. And being able to watch Joey's stories on Instagram and follow his adventures throughout the deserts of the American Southwest, I've gained a whole new fascination and appreciation for this plant family. Before we get to our conversation, I have one big announcement. Make sure you are subscribed to This Podcast Will Kill You by Drs. Aaron and Aaron. Because on March 19th, we are doing our second crossover episode. I don't want to spoil the topic, but it involves a plant many of you will be familiar with. So again, go check out This Podcast Will Kill You Tuesday, March 19th, the episode drops. It's one you're definitely going to want to listen to. All right, let's get into it. Let's talk Asteraceae with my friend Joey. I hope you enjoy. Hey, Joey, welcome back on the podcast. Hello. How you been? Oh, I've been, uh, I've been good. I, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I've been going to Mexico like two or three times and uh, uh, went to Nuevo León, Texas, and then uh, coincidentally I started uh, studying Asteraceae, which I thought I'd, I'd never do. It was always really intimidating, but, uh, but I got into it, and so here I am. Yeah, I've been living vicariously through your Instagram stories just because it's been miserable and dreary here and I don't get plants in the winter. So thanks for all the stories you've been putting up. But this uh, Asteraceae obsession is is really interesting to me because I don't personally know anyone that's that's done a deep dive into them. I know people that can identify them pretty well and have put in the effort, but you, you've had a, a, an extremely successful journey, so to speak, into this family. What, where the hell did that come from? Uh, I mean, I've only I've only really been into it, I guess, going hard. <laughs> if you can say that going hard, you have been uh, for three or four months. But uh, I was, I think maybe I don't. Know, I mean, I it's always intimidated me, you know. Uh, which there's those plant families you see that you're just like, I don't know, I have no idea how to start with that. Like it's, I think part of the reason Asteraceae is so hard is because the the actual flowers are so tiny and the the morphology of these these composite flowers is so intimidating and it's really hard to figure out what's going on i mean you look at a flower and of course anyone who's not familiar with the family thinks that 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 one flower that what's called a capitula which is the the compound inflorescence base you know the typical composite flower you look at a uh, daisy flower or a sunflower and you think that's just one flower you assume and then you know once you look a little bit closer or someone tells you uh, you realize that 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 flower is actually composed of up, upwards of in some cases 60 to 100 individual flowers jeez so you realize a lot more is going on than you initially suspected and then that that kind of blows your mind it's kind of like 
what got me into botany, you know, one realization opens up 10 more questions. So how did I get into it? I don't know. I mean, I, it always intimidated me. <laughs> the genus Eriogonum is intimidated. That's like on my back burner now. That's when I'm eventually maybe <laughs> once I've gotten a little bit of a grip on asters, I'll start getting in Eriogonums because they're everywhere. They're so ubiquitous out west and western North America. But asters were always on my on my plate. I mean, I had an idea that I was going to at one point get into them just because I had no idea. And asters are everywhere. And uh, I was I was meeting with John Redman on coming back from Mexico, I think in like, when was it, early early November or something? I made a little joke about what a nightmare asters are. And I always <laughs> called them DYCs, damn yellow composites, which is, <laughs> the, uh, that's like a, a harsh word for me now. I'll probably never use that again. Yeah, nix that from the vocabulary. Yeah, because I'm just so enamored with them now. I'm I'm so, I mean, fuck, they're everywhere. The asters are 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 everywhere they're they're on every continent except antarctica they're arguably the most ecologically successful plant family in the world i mean orchids are orchids have the most species it's estimated but orchids are are nowhere near as ubiquitous as asters. orchids are mostly not always but mostly in, in tropical humid environments yeah like tucked away into these like nice little corners i mean there's some ubiquitous ones but when i think of like asters i think of that fallow field behind my apartment or you know running along the railway tracks as a kid seeing goldenrods and new england aster a, a million different varieties on the theme but yeah for 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 what kind of looks like a generic form to be that widespread and that successful is is mind-blowing right right and yeah we, you know we all grow up thinking of I mean, when I thought of flowers growing up, I kind of wanted to puke. I thought of like, <laughs> I thought of like my stepmom and like these things she would put. A, we didn't get along towards you know the end of <laughs> of our tenure together. <laughs> but she'd put up these these uh, different like potpourri vases and all this corny homemaker shit. She lived in the suburbs outside of Chicago. Yeah. And daisies, daisies were fucking everywhere. And that's what I thought of of asters. I was just like this corny, and and that kind of did a disservice, you know this their use in inspirational posters and all this corny shit that just had no relation to my life at all. And especially my life, I had kind of a shitty childhood. I did not feel these warm sentiments that, you know, the, the cultural use of these flowers was supposed to ex exude. So I kind of was just turned off to them, but shit, if I'd seen a genus like Wonderlichia or like Barnadesia or like, I'm probably going to pronounce this wrong, Chukiaraga from, from Ecuador, you know, from the, higher elevations of Ecuador, you know, maybe as a kid, I would have had a different impression of answers. Cause those, I mean, those are the ones that I, God there. And there's so many of those, you know, Vicki Funk sent me her book. Uh, they did that her and this guy, I think it was mostly Vicki Funk, but she's the curator of the Smithsonian. She sent me this book. That's just a uh, 20 pound. <laughs> it didn't kill anybody when the mailman threw it over the fence. <laughs> it's so heavy. And it's got a, a ton of wonderful plates in there of just species and genera that I've never heard of before from all these different parts of the world, you know, from South America where the family originated or is thought to have originated to genera like Dendrocenicio in Kenya, to all these cool South African asters, to stuff in New Zealand, you know, and I just, there's so much variation there. And I guess it's, it's the, just a typical thing. The more you learn, the more in awe you are. And so now it's, I mean, I'm just, it's like all I'm thinking about right now. It's like the main focus of you know, I wake up and I've got the things in my life that give me anxiety and piss me off. And then I've got Aster ACA, at least right now at yeah. this point in my life. So I'm like, yeah, man, I don't, I don't know. It's, you could go, the, I mean, you could study this family your whole your whole life and, and not know everything. But, you know, I'm going to at least give it a year 
or so before I move on to something else. So hell yeah, I mean that's uh, that's I mean why I think we get along so well is that obsessive personality type and just getting so head over heels for something like that. But I think a lot of people can mirror your sentiments on this. Y- you know, I kind of just grew up like you thinking they were just boring, and I, I looked at them a lot of the same way as like my birder friends look at sparrows as like oh, another little brown thing uh, jumping around on the landscape, and and it's it's much the same way. But then I I started doing like some seed collecting stuff. And I even worked on a few Aster ACE during my master's project. And then I completely flipped from going, they're boring, to just, oh my god, they are way too intimidating for me to even get my head wrapped around. But it sounds like, you know, you being exposed to the variety that you can be out in that area and then just having people kind of facilitating that, like Vicky Funk, really just unlocked that door to, to a whole new world of, of Aster ACE diversity. Yeah, yeah, Vicky Funk, bless her heart. I just wrote her an email. I was like, hey... Because I looked up this book, I'm like, there's got to be a monograph on on asters. I mean, this is the this is the most diverse, speciated, uh, most ecologically successful plant family. There's got to be a book on it, and there wasn't one. I found like Asteraceae of the Midwest. That book, that's a great book. Uh, I found a bunch of papers online, which I stole through SciHub, and then I found that I found that book, and I, you know, a kid under waiting for waiting for Santa to come under the tree. Finally, I found, I came home and I found this box on my porch, and I'm fuck yeah, here we go. <laughs> And then it turns out the whole thing's available for free online. I mean, you can download this thousand page, but it's a thousand page PDF, but you can get it online. I think it's you Google comp book for distribution. It's a, uh, it comes up, but anyway, it breaks it up. And I mean, all this phylogenetic research has been done in the last 20 years. That's really illuminated. Uh, you know, it's, it's put a lot of insight into this family that we didn't know before. We had no idea. We thought there were three subfamilies. It turns out there's 12 or 13. Uh, it turns out there's like a, this might confuse some listeners, it confused the shit out of me until I understood it. There's a, a 22,000 base pair inversion that all of Asteraceae shares except for the Barnadesia subtribe, which is thought to be one of the earlier branching lineages of the family. So meaning it diverged early, it diverged before this 22,000 base pair inversion in the, the chloroplast genome, right? You got DNA in uh, chloroplast, uh, nucleus, and, uh, and mitochondria, and uh, I guess... I'm not sure who even figured this out. I think it was in the 80s. They figured. I think it was in the late 80s. Huh. Somebody figured out that all of Asteraceae has this. It's just a, a basically a, a type of mutation that occurs in DNA sometimes. And what it turned out to be was an apomorphy, a trademark that this whole clad, you know, it arose in Asteraceae, and then everything that branched off that original common ancestor all shares the same 22,000 base parent version. I think it's actually like 22,800. It's a 22.8 kilobase parent version. So, you know, it'd be like morphologically if like a, a fish evolved the third eye and then all the common ancestors, you know, 50 right. million years ago, all the common ancestors of that fish had that third eye. That third eye was a morphological trait that was retained in all the descendants, you know. But then the Barnadesia subtribe, which are fucking weird. That's a weird plant. It's a it's like a, a thorny aster that's like a shrub, but kind of has like a not a vining habit, I guess, Scandin. It's it, it it's just weird the way it grows. And I'm lucky enough that they have a specimen of Barnadesia, a living specimen at Berkeley Arboretum, you know, at UC, UC Berkeley Botanic Garden that probably no one has gone to look for in the last 10 years. But then I went there with my friend Damon Tyne. We're crawling around in the bushes, you know, making sure that no one, because they don't want you crawling in the beds. You know, yeah. you have to get this thing is off trail. And so I'm in there. You know, and I'm like, hey, Damon, look out, you know, because some of those people, they got kind of a high turnover rate at that botanic garden. So some of the people that have yelled at me in the past, bless their heart, they're wonderful people, but, and they had to do it. But some of the people that have yelled at me in the past aren't there anymore. So I didn't want to piss any of the new people off. So I'm like having a bunch of help for me. And sure enough, I'm looking for it. And I looked up the flowers online and 
And sure enough, there behind, you know, in the South America section behind a couple different bushes and a Brugmansia is the Barnadesia. And I was like, oh, my God, I was so excited to see it, man, because it's uh, such a weird it's hummingbird pollinated. It's red. It's It's got kind of like a tubular flower almost like what's the capitulum? What would be like the green rectangular bracts on the outside circumference of a sunflower? Not the capitulum, the involucre. Well, the capitulum too, but the whole, there's all these terminologies I'll explain later. Yeah. But the, you know, it's, it's got an elongated, basically capitulum. So it's like an elongated flower with these really beautiful red ray flowers that are bilabiate. That's a morphological apomorphy for a lot of the early branching subfamilies, subtribes mm. of Astraceae is that basically uh, kind of like a salvia flower, how it's zygomorphic, how it's bilaterally symmetrical. You can cut it one way vertically, but not horizontal right. to make it symmetrical. And so you've got the ray flower, which are like the daisy rays, but then on the opposite side of the, the ray corolla from that, you've got this other little thing that comes off, which uh, is like another lip. And in Barnadesia, it looks like these weird, like white ciliate hairs. Hmm. It's just a weird looking flower, man. It's really, it's hard to describe. It's, you, you know, you got to look it up. B-A-R-N-A-D-E-S-I-A. And then, of course, the whole thing is covered in thorns and just, you know, and this is for me, when I'm learning about a plant family, I like to go and learn about the earlier branching right. uh, class. Get that or origin story. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So it was cool to see this plant. And then, of course, there's Muticia, too, which is another early branching clad. And they had, you know, they had that specimens that were collected 30 years ago. Nice. Um, I kind of got sidetracked there, but... <laughs> <laughs> So it's, it was thought that there were three subfamilies. Turns out there's 12. And then, it, you know, of course, there's another subfamily that she mentions that this was actually, no one knew where to put this based on morphological traits just because it's so weird. Mm. This It's a monotypic subfamily. It's uh, a monotypic genus. Uh, it's called Hecastocleis. And no one knew where to put it. And then, of course, once this big phylogenetic study based on DNA came out uh, by this, I think it was by this guy named Panero at UT Austin, who I actually tried to call because I'm nuts. I was I was like, I'm just going to call him and see if he picks up. We'll talk for five minutes. Maybe. <laughs> you know, what have I got to lose? Right. I, don't, I don't have, it's like I have a reputation to lose or anything. So uh, this guy Panero from UT Austin and then Vicky Funk, they, when they did this revised phylogeny based on molecular DNA, they found out that Hecastocleis is actually its own, its own weird little branch on the Aster family tree, that it's, its closest living relatives are in South America, but it's got this strange distribution in Death Valley and Eastern Southeast California and then Western Nevada on these mountaintops. Weird. Yeah. You know, and it's just, and then of course that gets me because I'm, those are the mysteries that kind of get me thinking that that really get me uh, excited about botany. They get me thinking about relic distributions. How did the, this plant disperse over here? Is it just left over from a much wider distribution? Is it a relic? Has it been able to find a, ref find a refugia in these mountains? Is it a recent arrival that was maybe brought up somehow by an animal from South America? How did it get here? Right. And then, of course, the immense amounts of geologic time that are implied by these weird distributions of plants. So, you know, that's I'm going to go check that out in a month or two when it should be blooming. Nice. But yeah, I mean, I just just reading about these things and, and there's so many there's so much there to work with. I mean, it's asters have really conquered the world. You know, they've got these dispersal mechanisms that. First off, one one capitula, what you think of as a daisy flower that's actually composed of 40 to 50 flowers, or in the case of a genus like stevia, it's only got four or five florets in that capitula. But either way, one capitula on some of these plants can produce 
you know, that's if all those flowers are fertile, in many cases, they're not. It's only the marginal, the ray flowers that are fertile or only the disc flowers that are fertile. But if all the flowers are fertile, and even if they're not, it's still a lot of seed that's produced. And right. then another term you hear with asters that you don't really, uh, you don't really hear anywhere else. And it sounds ridiculous. The first time I heard this word, I was like, what the hell is it? What is that? Pappas. You know? <laughs> yeah. You want to see my pappas? <laughs> Yeah, it sounds ridiculous. I was like, what the hell is a pappas? This was years ago. I read it on the, the CNPS Facebook page. And so basically what a pappas is, is it's it's basically what you could think of as a calyx. The pappas is basically the hairs on a dandelion seed. They're what enable, in many cases, wind dispersal. I believe the pappas and ambrosia, I might be wrong on this, but the pappas and ambrosia, another genus, are the burrs that stick to you. Like if you're crawling around a ditch in the fall and you come out with all these, what we used to call hitchhikers when I was a kid. <laughs> The modified calyx on an ambrosia seed or a Biden's seed. But on a, on a dandelion or a lot of other genera too, the pappas on those, the wind picks up that seed. I mean, once you get a strong desert wind or or, or any wind anywhere for that matter, the Midwest winds, I imagine, are probably oh, a yeah. lot. And th- that seed can disperse for miles and miles and miles. I mean, and that's part of the reason it seems asters have been so successful and i imagine that's why you know it's thought that they originated in in south america i think there's fossil pollen from 60 to 70 million years ago but then the oldest actual fossil flower that looks like an aster capitula is from about 50 million years ago and i think it was either in brazil or argentina the genus is hard to pronounce they named it it begins with an r but it's thought that they originated in south america and then spread to africa and then of course there was an open niche there they just radiated like hell and just kind of took over and then spread to New Zealand and, and Asia and, and all over the place. Yeah, I mean, that that whole seed dispersal thing is incredible. And I study traits. That's what I work on every day, all the time. And one of the themes that comes up time and time again is in terms of long-distance seed dispersal and, and plants that are the most successful in recolonization and conservation efforts are always those that are either dispersed by animals long distance or by wind long distance. And asters check both of those boxes incredibly successfully. Yeah. And then you're producing prodigious amounts of seed too. It's not like, you know, some trees will only produce one nut per fruit. I mean, asters, Jesus Christ. The, the, the <laughs> First off, you got upwards of sometimes hundreds of, of capitula, capitulescences on a single plant, yeah. you know, whether it's an annual or perennial. Each capitula then has upwards of 50 to 60 seeds sometimes. I mean, that's just enormous amounts of seed. Yeah, it's, all right? it's opportunity. Right, exactly. And then, of course, when you add the dispersal, I mean, you could ease, I could easily see how one single akine with a wind dispersal mechanism like a pappas could travel across an ocean, you know? Well, of sure. course, it's thought when, they, when the, the major diversity happened 34 million years ago, obviously the oceans were a little bit narrower because the continents had, hadn't spread out quite as much. There was less distance, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, I just... You look at some of these genera that have come up. I mean, Wonderlichia, W-U-N-D-E-R-L-I-C-H-I-A. It blows your mind. One of the weirdest things you look, and then the phyleries on them, it's another aster term. The phyleries are like the imbricate bracts, like roofing shingles that surround the circumference of the capitulus. You know, and they're one of the big identifying factors. Um, You know, they just look like little inverted triangles that sometimes overlap each other and sometimes only occur in one series. There's only one row of them. Uh, they're one of the main diagnostic factors for identifying asters. And for me, that was one of the things, once I learned all this terminology, and believe me, it was a pain in the ass. It drove me nuts. I just, I would sit there at work 
and I'd bring papers to work and I'd be sitting in the locomotive just reading these papers. I found one paper by like the, I think it was out of Ethiopia of all places, the university in Ethiopia, how to study Aceraceae. And it's got all the terms in there, oh, discoid wow. flowers, disiform flowers, ligulate flowers, which flowers that are entirely ligulate are only in the chicory tribe. Right. So they look like all ray flowers. Right. But the the important thing to notice, and my friend David Greenberg, he's a botanist up at a, on Mount Tan, he, you know, he pointed this out to me and he was a big help too getting into this. I guess he taught a class on it two or three years ago. He pointed out to me about ligulate flowers is that they have five lobes. So if you look at the edge of the, the distal end of the, the ray flower, you know, on most asters that aren't ligulate flowers, it's only what look like teeth. It's only got three teeth, three lobes. Mm-hmm. But if you look at ligulate flowers, anything in the chicory tribe, I believe lettuce is in the chicory tribe. I mean, obviously chicory is those purple flowers that are a common weed on roadsides. You look at the, the end of those ray flowers and they got five lobes. And it's only the chicory subfamily that has flowers like that. And that's an important diagnostic tool too. And, th- and that's another cool thing about asters is why, I mean, this has got me more into molecular phylogenetics too, because you basically need them. There's so much speciation. There's so much radiation. I mean, we're talking at least 23,000 species in the sunflower family that you basically need to take a magnifying glass to all the speciation and, and the evolution and the adaptive radiations to understand what's going on there. And molecular phylogenetics are that magnifying glass. Right. You know, and that's that's why, you know, Funk and Panero's paper was so cool. I mean, we went from three subfamilies to basically saying, wow, there's a lot more going on here. There's 12 or 13 at least. And that's the that's another thing about asters too, is I had never really learned about the importance of subfamilies or tribes or subtribes. And these are all common terms when you're studying Asteraceae. I mean, I guess, you know, you, you look at Babaceae, the pea family, they got what, three subfamilies, right? Right. That makes sense. All right. That's cool. It's not too intimidating, but holy shit. Not only do you have subfamilies, you got tribes. And then of course you get into tribes and you get into subtribes. So you look at a cladogram, which is like a, for those that don't know, I'm assuming a lot do, but Cladogram, which is basically like a, a way for taxonomists to deduce evolutionary relationships within a family. And you look at an, a cladogram for asters and it's like, holy fuck, you could get lost. It's like a, it's like looking at a, a subway map for some sci-fi future. <laughs> it's like just a fucking, I mean, it's like, you know, it, it's cool because, you know, you'll look at these genera and be like, and that's what I did with conifers 10 years ago. I looked, I would look at these genera and say, oh, wow, what's the closest relative to this? Oh, it's this one. What's that genus? I've never heard of that. Boom, I go look it up. So I'll, I'll read up on these genera I've never heard of before. And uh, it's just, I mean, yeah, subfamilies, tribes, subtribes. It's, oh, there's so much there, you know? Yeah. And I can see, I understand why I was intimidated by it for so long and why so many other people are. But going back to that, when I came back, from Mexico in November and I was talking with John Rebman at his desk and I said something like, yeah, you know, I'll get an Astros one day. They're just, they're kind of a, uh, they're kind of a pain in the ass. They're hard to, you know, I, I don't really know what's going on. They all look alike. You know, I felt about Astros the way that Ronald Reagan felt about trees. Hey, they all look alike, whatever. <laughs> and he was like, he said something. He's like, oh yeah, but they're so cool. I mean, there's so much going on there. And I was like, oh, well, John Redman's a great botanist and super friendly guy, and I admire and respect him. So if he's saying that, maybe there's something there. So then I, I was like, fuck it, I'm going to get into it. All right, here we go. You know, what else am I doing? I'm just, right. <laughs> what else am I doing with my life? I'm just hauling shit around for the railroad and screaming at my dogs. So uh, <laughs> they scream back at me, too. It's a mutual yeah, it's love. love. 
so I figured I'm going to get into it. And that's, that's what really, and then of course, yeah, one question opens up yeah. or one answer opens up 10 more questions. So, I mean, yeah, there's, there's still, I mean, my, my main thing now that I would like to do at some point is go to South America and see some of these Astro ACA and some of the, the higher elevation ones too. The homeland. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the, the early, earlier branching clads and see what they're doing. Cause it's one thing to see pictures of a plant and it's another thing to see it in its habitat. You know, in its ecology, in the context with all the other things that it grows with, yeah. you know, and the things that pollinate it and the things that eat it and the, the ways in which it defends itself against herbivory and which is a whole nother wormhole in Asteraceae because they've got these chemical defense mechanisms. I mean, they, they produce so many chemicals in their tissue and they're so good at it. They're so, and the chemicals work, the chemicals work at keeping insects away. I mean, Christ, pyrethrins are a derivative of uh, chrysanthemums, you know, pyrethrins, which are a common insecticide are yeah. synthetic derivative of compound that chrysanthemums produce. That's wild. So yeah, they got these things called, a lot of astros have these things called sesquiterpene lactones, which I'm, you know, I've tried reading about them but i'm not a chemist yeah that, that gets way into the weeds for me right 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 it flies way over my head but basically they get the job done and that, and that was another thing that before aside from molecular phylogenetics for learning how to figure out how different these different plants are related to each other within sunflower family they would do chemical analysis you know they, oh that's cool yeah like a, a certain compound evolves in in a in a common ancestor. And then of course, all the descendants end up sharing that, that same compound or a variation of it. Right. But, so you get that like biochemical phylogeny. Right. Right. But then of course you never know whether it's convergent sure. or, or whether that's, I mean, fuck, and that really, that's my fear is that <laughs> <laughs> there's going to be some, something's going to be discovered and this is ridiculous, but something's going to be discovered in the next 30 or 40 years, however long that, that shows that horizontal gene transfer is somehow possible Oof. within and then that throw that fucks everything <laughs> of course there's there's no way there's no, no way but but it's an exciting wouldn't worry be, wouldn't it be funny yeah like everything you know, is just fucked up yeah we're all just it's a big promiscuous world out there right 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 and and that with asteraceae i mean speaking of promiscuity or or genotypic plasticity a lot of these it's so recent the diversification and a lot of these even genera maybe but in a lot of the at least within the species that there's still a lot of gene flow between different species and there's still yeah i don't know man i don't know it's confusing but it's exciting too it's really really exciting yeah definitely if you're curious about the world and then one thing you know we learned from the last time we talked about you is you you like these origin stories and you like to connect this sort of big picture deep history kind of story of the world and this sounds like another avenue to really appreciate the biosphere and the geosphere of of planet Earth, this this amazing rock that we're living on, and Astros is just another way of of falling into that. And and it was so cool to kind of watch because I, you know, we were in contact as you were starting to get curious about it and starting to talk to people, and it's it's been really fun to watch how this has sort of exploded and increased your appreciation of the world as a result. <laughs> uh, and it's and it's through this one family. You watch this guy who might have mild Aspergers and curses too much, and you watch him just get on a you know, one track mind and, and just go with it, you know? <laughs> yeah, but I'm learning in the process. And that's what's so great about this is, again, I and it's too intimidating for me. I don't I, it's not a family I've decided to tackle yet. But now you've opened up a little window into this this world that I'm like, oh, wow, I know I'm going to be paying a lot more attention to this family as as spring and summer starts to approach. And it's really, you know, I really appreciate your enjoyment of it, but the way in which you've been able to unlock these these stories that paint a more complete picture of what's going on out there. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's for me, it's all just escapism. You know, I look at the the human world and I want to puke in most cases. I just I don't like what we're doing. I think we heard the term junk values last night. Hmm. When I see the more our society goes into the future, or at least our current American society, the more I see us descending into this idiocracy. You know, and then of course you take into habitat loss and you take all these things that are so beautiful and have been around forever. We're destroying to replace with shopping centers and golf courses, or in some cases, in third world countries, just agriculture. Yeah. You know, I've seen so much cloud forest, you know, and I'm not going to say they can't do it. Fuck, we destroyed all our shit. We get some hillside in northern Oaxaca and the mountains of Oaxaca. It used to be cloud forest gets turned into corn plantation. I mean, yeah, it sucks, but that's, you know, I don't know. You know, I think that. I really see the future heading into, and maybe a lot of people aren't going to like this, but I see the future heading into the science fiction dystopia. You know, like in that that shitty Matt Damon movie, Elysium. Actually, it wasn't that wasn't that bad. You know, where basically Earth has been turned into a dusty, just ghetto. There's this huge underclass of people that are barely making it. They're on the rat wheel of shitty wages and high yeah. rent. But biodiversity is just going down. And I think again, it's just because of junk values. It's not us. It's there's a void of leadership and there's no one really pointing out, hey, all these things are important. They're worth preserving. You know, like E.O. Wilson says, we got to set aside at least half of the planet and just not fuck with it. Just don't touch it. Don't fuck with it. Don't try to do anything with it. Just set it aside and leave it be mm. and understand that by doing that, that is serving a purpose, whether you want to call it the lungs of the earth or just space to breathe for us so we don't lose our fucking minds because we're already killing each other and, and so for me it's this escapism and i've used plants other people use other things to, yeah. to escape really with me i mean it's the beauty of this this world that's been here for so long before we were here that provides me with any sort of escape or, or sense of belonging i mean plants are the skin of the earth so are rocks so is geology and i just want to learn more about it you know in the, the short time i'm given here so right on no it's a it's a healthy pursuit yeah, so right now it's Asteraceae, maybe next year it'll be Ariagonum, I don't know. <laughs> Just narrowing that focus, but I think one of the coolest things that, you know, you've managed to teach me and blow my mind with is is it really comes down to those individual florets on an Asteraceae. Uh, you know, you've got the capitula, it's made up of multiple flowers, individual, and, and you know, I've kind of appreciated in the past that it's kind of like uh, getting the most bang out of your buck with Asteraceae. You can pack a lot of tiny flowers on there, but then, you know, tiny flowers might not be as attractive to pollinators. Well, evolve this whole suite of structures that kind of in combination mimics uh, a single large floral display but then you have all of those awesome reproductive possibilities with the multiple florets in there. But even beyond that, in terms of pollination, you know, there's Asteraceae is weird. I used to just think it was just kind of all out there. It's not quite wind pollinated, but, you know, if something lands on it, it's going to mix. And it, I thought it was boring. But in terms of their morphology and the way the flowers, the individual flowers mature, you have blown my mind on that. So let's let's elaborate on that fact a bit more because that's it's insane. <laughs> I'm covering my eyes with my hands because I'm too excited. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, th- and that was a thing for me. The the fucking morphology is so weird. So anthers, you know, you normally think of like you look at a, a saxifrage or you look at a salvia and you got stamens poking out of the corolla, right? They look like little bug antennas, like these little arms at the end, you know, or even on a lily at the end of these stamens are the anthers with the pollen on them. And in asters, it's not like that at all. It's nothing. I mean, you see things poking out, you see exerted parts of a flower, but they're not the male parts. So what you see poking out, those little antenna that curve like a Y in most cases, 
Those are the female parts. That's the style. That's what receives the pollen. Where the anthers are is, and this is why they call people who study Asteraceae, which I didn't know. This is like next level nerd shit. They call them synanthrologists. Syn fused anther, fused anther, synanthrologists. So that what the anthers are is you look at an aster flower up close and you see, a, in most cases, a five-lobed corolla. You know, unless you're Peridale, common genus out west, it's the only genus with four-lobed corollas. But most most asters, they have a five-lobed corolla. And that's the, why they escape notice so much is because they're tiny. I mean, how many millimeters across are most of these corollas? And in, in most cases, you, you get up close and you see, okay, you see a five-lobed corolla. But then within that corolla is a fused anther column. So it's it's all of the anthers, the things that produce the pollen, but they're all, they're fused together and they're really hard to see. You know, in most flowers, the anthers are exposed. You want to get that pollen out there. But with, with asters, what they use, and I'm not sure if the sister clads, Goodiniaceae, which is mostly in Australia, and Calisaraceae, those are the two families that are most closely related to asters. I'm not sure if they do this too, but they've got the same kind of general form going, at least with, with compound flowers. Right. But you look at those anthers and you can barely see them, but what they, what Asteraceae uses is something called secondary pollen presentation. Oh boy. Which is, I mean, yeah, that, that was, I, it took me a while to kind of re I had to read that again when I first read it. And then I looked and I was like that, okay, that's what's going on. So what, what that is, is you've got the fused anther column, which is inside the corolla and all the petals on the corolla are fused. If it's a disc flower, because right, you got the marginal flowers, the ray flowers, the daisy like flowers, and then on the inside, this you know, like of a sunflower, it's all disc flowers. Mm-hmm. So the disc flowers got the fused corolla and then the fused anther column inside of that, which you can almost never see unless you got a loop or a stereoscope, which I actually went out and got once I got into Asteraceae. I was like, oh I got boy. <laughs> And the, the pollen's inside of that. And secondary pollen presentation is basically the style pushes out of that fused anther column. And as it comes out, it scrapes the pollen off the inside of that fused anther column Jeez. before the style opens. It's so cool how they do this. It, it pushes that, that pollen out, exposes the pollen to pollinators. And then once the pollinators have removed it from that, that style that's pushed out of the fused anther column, then the style itself opens and you get that kind of Y shape. And then the style is receptive to pollen. And wow. because asters mostly mature from the outside in, outside flowers may be at the female phase and then the disc florets further in. It's got centripetal floret maturation, the way that the flowers mature. Basically, you know, the outside is, is in the female phase, the outside flowers and the, the inside flowers are at the male phase still. You know, the style is pushing the pollen out, but is not yet receptive to pollen. There's always a flower ready to either be pollinated or to produce pollen. So what you've got over the long span of however long these flowers basically the flowers always there's always something going on there for pollinators it's basically a it's it's a way to extend the amount of time that a flower is mature and at anthesis etc so it's it, it just expands the amount of time that the flower is mature which is great you know in term ecologically because there's always something there for pollinators for sure yeah and, and i mean just thinking about it in context of like reproductive success and distribution success and 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 really in the context of this family i mean what is the measure of fitness for any organism it's how likely are you to get your genes into the next generation and there you have it i mean that is one of the keys i would assume to really the amazing success of asteraceae right it's it's lots of flowers it's good dispersal i mean it's just and once i learned that too that kind of it was it blew my mind it was it it further illuminated how 
why this plant family is so successful. You look at most weeds you see at like a dirt lot in a city, they're mostly asters, you know, at least the annuals, at least the stuff, you know, growing out of the concrete and whatever. It's, you know, the train yard where I work, it's mostly asteraceae weeds blooming. I mean, they're, they're so ubiquitous and, and they're so common and they're, they're just extremely successful. Yeah, it's bizarre to think about that style really having a dual function in the plant. And to me, it's also kind of evidence that evolution isn't always about the best design. I mean, it sounds like these anthers were fused to the inside of the Corolla. Perhaps the mechanism for getting them out into the world just wasn't there. It would never evolve genetically. This is all assumptions, obviously. But then, okay, well, what does emerge? The styles. And if they put a little brush on the outside of them before they're receptive, they're going to take that pollen with them. And it makes... All of this sort of bigger picture thing, again, makes sense, especially in the context of such a successful and diverse plant family. And and what's really cool is, again, you taught me this. I'm watching your stuff. You're showing me pictures of the stereoscope, your dissections, and, and really nicely illustrated examples of it. And then I'm thinking about what I've seen. You know, I've got a bunch of uh, Vernonia in my backyard, ironweeds. And they're perfect for understanding this. And it's like, it blew my mind because yeah, here we have these deep purple flowers and then bright white pollen. And it's always that you see the the little Y thing kind of come out and it pokes up straight for a day or two and it's covered in white. And then it just kind of fades a little bit back to purple. And then it's, it's in this Y shaped form. And I'm like, oh, I've seen this and never even put two and two together that that's what was occurring. Exactly. That's what the whole thing is. It's like, if you've been looking at this, this thing the whole time. However many years you've been, I, I've because I've been into botany what ten years now, twelve years, been looking, and I've seen asters everywhere, especially being being into desert botany, which I've been doing for six or seven years. Asters are everywhere. They've capitalized on the deserts. They're so successful in the deserts. A lot of desert annuals, a couple desert perennials, desert shrubs. That Pusophyllum shadii is fucking amazing. Favorite plant of the deserts right now. But uh, I've been looking at this thing this whole time, and then you don't realize what's going on. And then you look a little bit closer, and it's like the curtains lifted up, and you're like, holy shit, I didn't realize that. You know, you look and you see that, okay, one one capitula, one one aster flower. It's well, these individual florets are in the female phase. The Y is open, the that style is open, it's uh you're ready to receive pollen, but then the ones further inward towards the center are still in the male phase. The style's just it's not opened yet. It just looks like a little rod poking out of that fused Corolla. It's covered in pollen. For me, it just uh, it illuminated everything. And it's and then you're like, that, that's pretty cool, actually. I mean, what they're doing, like I said, the flowers always either produce. It's the flowers always while it's open, while it's warm, while it's not winter, et cetera. The flowers always producing pollen. It's always receiving pollen. Some flowers are mature. Some aren't. Some are pollinated. Some are just starting to be pollinated. There's so much going on there. Yeah, man. I I just. The floral thing really blew my mind because, again, it opened up all of these big picture ideas about something I've generally thought of as like, you've seen one, you've seen them all. But the other part of it, too, is just thinking about all of the kind of territory these plants have conquered. And I'm used to being in the Midwest and the Northeast. They're kind of fallow field plants, edge plants. You get the occasional one that shows up in a wetland or in a forest. But, you know, you live out in the desert. And if there's one thing I remember from being out West uh, is the desert is... Is such an amazing place to see aster diversity at work and, and all the different ways that plants can really adapt to living in a xeric environment that's, that's super punishing to other plants. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, deserts, you know, they look barren and whatever, but they're really, if you, if you're a plant and you master a few things, a desert is really an open niche, right? It's really a, a blank canvas uh, to just kind of go nuts with radiation and, and diversification and speciation, which is certainly what asters have done. You know, I mean, 
Shit, the Midwest, I got to give a shout out to Silphium, though. What a fucking cool genus. Completely unrelated to what we're talking about now, but when I, when I saw Silphiums for the first time uh, four or five years ago, I kind of, that, I mean, leaves, you know, they were bigger than my kid. They're like three feet and <laughs> so a lot going on there. But yeah, with, with the deserts, I mean, basically, you know, I was telling a friend, uh, she lives in South Texas. Of course, they get more rain. It's not even really a, a desert there. It's more just, you know, thorn scrub. It's a, it's a seasonal desert. But, mm. you know, out, you go, the further west you go, the drier the deserts get. You get out, to, well, the Sonoran, but especially the Mojave, that's really a desert. That's more akin to maybe what you see in the Atacama, but not even as not as dry as the Atacama. But you know, we Mojave gets most of its rain in the winter. Summers are excruciatingly hot and just bone bone dry. You know, so you master a couple things. When and some of the things that Astros have done, well, first off, there's a lot of annuals, right? The annuals, uh, what they tend to do is is use the chemistry. They don't have they don't produce the, the hairs as much. Some of them do, but a lot of them just use use glands. They use chemistry. You know, you look at especially the Tajedea tribe, the Marigold tribe. It's Tajedea, T A G E T E A E. You know, you look at Nicolicia, you look at Adenophyllum, you look at Porophyllum. They're covered in glands. I mean, there are these little resinous dots um, that you can scrape, and they they smell good. And well, I think they smell good. Some people think they smell like hell. <laughs> what they do, those aren't even. I guess Nicolicia is an annual, but Porophyllum's perennial. It's got woody tissue. So is Adenophyllum, but during the dry season, they, they really heavily die back to just a lot of the woody tissue. Of course, that'll grow again once the, the rain comes. But they've, they're covered in glands and resins. And uh, I was telling a friend, like I said, from Texas, most of the plants out here, if you, you come out here, you'll see most of the plants out here are white. They're like white or blue, covered in hairs, which, of course, the hairs reflect the sun, but also keep the humidity level on that small layer of air that's between the hair and the epidermal yeah. leaf tissue. Uh, they keep the humidity level up. They reduce moisture loss, transpiration, et cetera. And everything out here is is like that. Like all the all the plants. And Celia is a, is the poster child for that. It's oh, really, really white, really fuzzy. So so asters have, have mastered that, you know, uh, they're either really glandular to discourage herbivory. They produce these really bitter terpenes and the sesquiterpene lactones and other chemicals to discourage herbivory. Also, they're, they can be really fuzzy and they reflect the sun and, and just endure. I mean, to see a, a plant with white leaves when you're, you're not used to it, you know, say you grow up in the Midwest, it's, it's pretty wild. Pusophyllum shadia, as I mentioned before, is that that shrub that you'll see growing out of these cliff faces. Uh, I mean, you'll see it in washes too, but you'll see it growing out of cliff faces, and it looks like a juniper almost. It's the weirdest thing. But then you look, and it's got these discoid flowers. They're no rays. They're just they're, they're discoid aster flowers, maybe twelve florets per capitula. Um, so so asters kind of went nuts, and when they got to the deserts, and <laughs> there's they, there's so many variations on a form. There's so many different methods that they're using to survive life in these brutal places. You know, they annuals like peridoli, which is looks like it's spelled peridotile, but peridoli, which my friend Isaac is studying, he's getting his PhD in peridoli, because um, there's so much diversification in that genus, and they've really colonized this niche of growing out of out of walls, out of cliff faces. Bizarre. Um, it's so weird, you know. I it, it's a it's dangerous studying them. I worry about them. <laughs> at some point but he's you know been all over mexico looking at those doing making collections etc uh peridoli is an annual it's and they're everywhere they're growing on the floor too at least peridoli and morii that species and first rain they germinate they grow they flower they get pollinated and then they produce tons of seed and then they die and then that seed just stays in the soil till a good rain again which maybe might be a couple years away yeah. a lot of a lot of 
desert annuals do that. The malacothrix, layas, a, a, a lot of stuff utilizes that. I mean, that whole super bloom, what they called the super bloom, I think in Death Valley was a uh, four years ago and then there, of course there was the other one two years ago in 2017 at carrizo plain i think carrizo plain most of those flowers were, were a genus called monolopia uh the death valley super bloom was jurea canessens it's an annual uh in the encelia tribe and they just i mean thousands and th hundreds of thousands of these flowers just everywhere but speaking of encelias that's which is a perennial I mean, I was just down looking at a, a really weird plant in Baja, California, that's only known from, I think, one or two hills. Wow. And it's Encelia uh, ravenii. The, the genus Encelia is all over Western North America. I think there's like 20 or 25 species. You know, Encelia farinosa, you'll see on the, the sides of I-40 driving through Arizona, I-8, I-10, etc. They're, they're, you know, the, basically the, the yellow sunflower looking thing with white leaves that grows on the side of the road. But um, there's been a whole lot of diversification and radiation in Baja in that genus. And this this plant, Enciliary venii, is highly unusual for the genus because it's got white ray flowers. That's so and, weird. And not only that, but, you know, Enciliary farinosa, you know, you'll have a the, the flowering stalk comes up and then it's got maybe four or five, six flowers on one flowering stalk. And then it'll have maybe 20 flowering stalks per, per plant. Enciliary venii, uh, like... Um, I believe it's Encia actonii does this too. It's got one flowering stalk and only one flower. It's got solitary flower heads and and then of course white ray flowers. But and it just grows on this one granite hill near San Felipe in Baja California. And then and then of course that leaves the mystery: why is it there? Is it a relic of a formerly more widespread distribution? Did it quote just evolve like in the last couple thousand, ten thousand years? How to get there? And then of course there's so many. I mean Baja's crazy for encelias. I mean, Baja is good for a lot of stuff. You get it because it's basically an island that's just connected to the mainland up at the north. So you get all those island effects of, of radiation and diversification and, and you know, lots of endemism, which is always cool. So then you, you've you got uh, Encelia venia, you got Encelia uh, ventorum. And so you've got Encelia ventorum out on the dunes, uh, Encelia palmeri, Encelia stenophylla on the Vizcano Peninsula, which is another super weird one. And then, of course, I think there's another one. What is it? Uh, Encelia densifolia down in the Santa Clara Mountains on the Vizcano Peninsula. So, yeah, I mean, there's just, you know, I'm going down there to check that out. There's just a lot going on there, too. There's a lot of uh, diversification and uh, speciation. That's, yeah. And it's so cool to have that available to go out and say, okay, now I want to see this stuff in person. It's it's cool to read about it, but getting out and really looking at these things in hand, in situ, thinking about their distributions. I mean, what better way to kind of put all these pieces together and truly start to understand what's going on out there. And then again, just bringing it all back to sort of this bigger appreciation for, for life as we know it. I mean, like you said, these, these things are growing in some of the harshest climates. There's different strategies to doing it. And here's one family that kind of bridges the gap between all of the possible strategies you can think of. And like even thinking about desert asters, maybe not necessarily in, in the American Southwest, but you know, a lot of the houseplants, the succulents, like the the the, the senecios, the pearl, uh, what do they call those? Chain pearl, ch per, chain of pearls, the uh, <laughs> string of pearls. That's what they like, the string of pearls and the, the chalk stick plants. I mean, those are asteraceae too. Those are wild. Yeah. Yeah, man. There's a, there's a cool genus I'd like to see in Baja called, I think it's Colterella, but it's a same thing. It's a kind of a succulent aster. 
Uh, and I believe it's in, in Baja, California, sir. It's way down there. Monotypic genus, uh, really weird looking. But it's it's to see asters that have evolved succulents. Oh, that, God, that was another one. Berea, I saw that in South Texas. It's a succulent aster <laughs> that grows on these really salty plains, these, these kind of salty flats. Where, you know, it's so salty and so it's such a harsh environment. I mean, the mesquite doesn't even get taller than five mm-hmm. or six feet. And, uh, and then, of course, another cool plant grows there, a highly endangered cactus, Astrophyta mysterious. But, uh, yeah, I mean, Berea, and then it turns out Berea's only got two species in it. And it's just this kind of weird, this weird, you know, branch on the, the gigantic aster family tree. But to see asters that have evolved succulents, I mean... You really, you really wonder what they're working with genetically. You know what you can pull out of the bag next to just cope with uh, <laughs> with yeah. life, whatever harsh environment. They're just, and that's why people commonly say that asters are so plastic. You know, they've—I don't know how they do it, but they've got so much to work with. It seems like there's so much potential for them to evolve different traits uh, for coping, and that's that's why they're so successful. There's another cool genus called Hoffmeisteria which I saw once growing on cliffs above the Sea of Cortez. And it's got uh, basically just discoid flowers, pink, bright pink discoid flowers growing on eight or 10 inch pedestals and just growing on these super rocky, you know, fucked up barren cliffs. Mm-hmm. There's not much else going on there. And then of course it's, you know, in a desert environment, there's, there's pack of serious cactus, those huge Cardone cactus uh, growing around them. And, and, and they've colonized that niche. They're doing great. Like I said, I've been seeing these plants for so long mm-hmm. and just kind of was intimidated by them and didn't want to mess with them. And, but I've, they've always kind of intrigued me. And so, uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to go deep. <laughs> Taking that deep dive and, and really kind of getting back to basics a lot of times too, because like you said, you see these things your whole life and, and, you know, even in the beginning it had a negative connotation for you almost, but now to kind of come full circle and, and really find the avenue that does appeal to you and, and finally opens those doors is, is really special. And it's, like you said, it's, it's a, it's a bandaid sometimes on having to deal with the way the world is and not, not being okay with it, but it's also good because, you know, you're, Here's a person that is under, trying to understand this stuff. You're, you're contributing to science in a lot of ways by taking pictures and finding these things and taking voucher specimens. You know, it's, it's appreciation across the board, and it's a, really being able to share that with the world and, and try to get others to kind of feel the same way. It's so important. I mean, I'm already a plant nut, but you've already turned my, my, my ship around on, on this group of plants, and that's, that's vital. I mean, I don't think... The internet is all bad, but it can be a bad tool. But then to see people like yourself using it to its full advantage to fully grasp not only the world around you and how you want to see it, but also to get others to jump on board in some context or another is is incredible. Right, right. Can you want to you want to use the internet to, you know, compare yourself to others and show off what material shit you got and what, you know, what other, or you can use it to teach yourself things and to contribute to science and to learn and to, to find people that share similar interests. And I mean, that's, that's really, for me, that's, it's, it's not just about my personal experience with all this stuff of getting to, getting to see this in person. And know oh, I want to be an eco tourist or whatever. It's I want to, I want to go see this stuff and I want to, I want to make what I see, uh, record as much of it as possible and make it available to other people to not only get them excited about it and to maybe educate them, but, but also of course, in the context of where human 
civilization is at right now because make a record of these things because you never know if it's going to be there in 20 or 30 years still you know i mean there's yeah. that that story of uh that the ps splendens that uh Rubiese that you found, you know, Dennis, Don Mahoney, my friend was with Dennis Breedlove when they went back to go look for that thing and realized that where it was, where it had grown, where it had been found was now just a huge agricultural field. And the, the trees, the tree stumps were still there and some of them were even still smoldering. And, you know, Dennis Breedlove said to him, Christ, they've made it this, they finally made it this high up the mountain, you know? Yeah. It's disgusting. So, yeah. It's a, it's a, I mean, it's a negative context, but it's, that's, that's real. And, if, you know, talking about it, talking about the negative stuff is how we're going to maybe get people to give a shit about it one day. But, but yeah, I mean, it's all just, you know, I, I put photos on Cal photos. I put stuff on iNaturalist. I'll update Wikipedia. There's a, there's a tax on that doesn't have a Wikipedia article. I'll put some, I'll put a Wikipedia article up nice. on it. Yeah, shit like that. Yeah. And it, it, I mean, it reminds me of that Ed Abbey quote where I, I'm going to butcher it, but essentially the takeaway message is it's it's not enough to protect it. You have to get out there and experience it, too, and, and do it while it's still there. And, you know, at the end of the day, you can at least say you've outlived the bastards. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people just don't know. I think a lot of people just don't know the beauty that's out there and they have no context for it. And then, of course, you add other things in there like materialism or religion or all this other silly shit i mean it, the more you learn about the world and by no means am i any sort of highbrow person to speak about this i'm extremely lowbrow i curse too much i've got a juvenile a sophomoric sense of humor but the more you learn about the world around you the the more it kind of opens up your your bigger picture you know when you live in this sheltered world and these are your values and these are what you're these are the things you're taught to believe it's really easy to just ignore all this shit around you and you know just you sweep all plants under the rug. Just think they're just bushes. Uh, those mountains are just rocks. But the more you learn about them, the more you really realize, wow, this is, like I said, the origin story. This is where we came from. Everything's put in a context and you have a much wider, more articulate, more in-depth understanding of the world that you live on. You're not just some ignorant ass walking around. You know, you, you never know how long you're here. You know, you got to, I want to learn everything about the world this cool little rock that we're on in this corner of the galaxy. I want to learn all about it. I want to experience it. I want to, I want to contribute what I can to other people. I want to, I guess just yeah, make the most of, of the short time I might have. So hell yeah, man. Yeah. I don't know. That's so right now it's asters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I mean, in thinking about sharing with the world and getting your viewpoint out there at the very least and trying to inspire people, you have recently, endeavored into the world of podcasting yourself um you know what's that all about where can people find it and uh what kind of stuff are you covering some yeah i don't know i'm, I'm doing what i can my i have no audio editing skills and i can't figure out how to put audacity on a linux operating system but uh i just uh, yeah i don't know i just I started i would just do these hour-long rants basically about things that excited me about botany or ecology at different Trips I'd went on, um, shit like that, ex experiences I had. It's called, uh, it's just called Crime Pays, but Bonnie doesn't podcast. You know, hopefully you got a, you got a podcast app that's got a fast forward, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and if they get too obnoxious, but yeah, but like me and, uh, me and my friend Isaac and this guy, Chris, who, uh, was studying in Celia for a while. We did a podcast on Aceraceae. I did a, an episode on a, a trip to Nuevo Leon to see a bunch of rare cactus populations, um, yeah, I'll just, you know, I just, whenever I feel it, just basically if, uh, if I'm feeling excited about plants that day and I feel like I can talk, which uh, I'm obviously, I got a big mouth and I can be a, a long-winded <laughs> ranter, I'll, I'll do it. 
So, uh, yeah, there's that. And then, um, then of course, I just got the IG page, which is filled with a bunch of uh, over-caffeinated uh, botanical rants, mostly in the field or, you know, out in habitat, just filming different uh, whatever, whatever genus, whatever family, whatever species. I'm excited about that day. So. Yeah. Well, I can speak to the fact that, I mean, like I said, I live vicariously through it, especially in the winter months. I really love your take on things. I love the adventures you go on and I'm learning the whole time. So I will put up links to all of these and I really recommend people check it out uh, and, and just appreciate it for what it is. I mean, it's your window into the world and the it's it's you've got your own voice, you've got your own take on it. And we can't just keep falling into these little bubbles of, I like this because this is how I talk. You know, you, even if you don't necessarily agree with everything that someone is saying, appreciate other viewpoints and, and experience them because that's the only way we can kind of get past a lot of what the media does to, to divide us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, in the end, it just comes down to being excited about science and being excited about uh, about plants and, and the long story of uh, the evolution of life on earth. So that's what it is for me. Awesome. Well, Joey, man, I, I appreciate you. I love our conversations. You're a great person and a great friend. Uh, thanks for talking with us. Yeah, thanks a lot. Thanks for giving me a platform uh, to get people excited about uh, asters. Well, you've definitely worked it on, on me and I'm really hoping the listeners, at least some of them feel the same way. So here's <laughs> to uh, here's to finding more Asteraceae out there. All right, right on. Thanks. Take care. Cheers. What did I tell you? Do you have a newfound appreciation for Asteraceae or what? Fascinating group of plants, and I'm going to pay a lot more attention to them this year. Aster identification may not be the easiest topic to tackle in botany, but it's well worth a little bit more effort on each and every one of our parts. Great group of plants, and I really thank Joey for introducing us to that. Alright everyone, that does it for this week. A lot of really neat adventures on the horizon, so please stay tuned, and the best way to do that is to hit that subscribe button. Also, please check out our merch site, Indef uh, teespring.com slash stores slash plants and know that a portion of every purchase you make over there is being donated to the Rainforest Trust. All right, that's it for me, but I hope all of you have a fun and safe week. Adios, everyone.